Hello, acquired LPs and readers of The Generalist. For anyone from The Generalist audience, I am Ben Gilbert, and I'm the co-founder of Pioneer Square Labs, a startup studio and early-stage venture firm in Seattle. And I'm David Rosenthal, and I'm an angel investor based in San Francisco. And we are the hosts of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories and playbooks behind them. This is a first for Acquired on a number of fronts. It is the first time that we've covered a company just before its IPO. It is the first time that we've done a show like this, you know, where we cover a full company just for folks who are members of the Acquired Limited Partner Program. It is the first time that we are partnering up with Mario Gabrielli, the person behind The Generalist and a frequent source of acquired research, the S1 Club. But before we introduce Mario, here's a little bit about the company we are discussing today, Roblox. Roblox might be the most important company of the next generation, those 16 and under. A full 50% of kids under 16 have used the service in the last 30 days, which is a crazy, insane stat that just blew my mind in the research here. It was supposed to go public just over a month ago at a $3 billion market cap, but instead they decided to uh, (laughs) not do that, take some private investment at just shy of a $30 billion valuation, that's 10x. There are now rumors that is going to go public in a direct listing very soon here at double the share price of that December round, meaning it could be a 20x compared to their valuation from December. The company's fascinating that we'll talk about today, but just like a nutty moment in our financial system where this is possible for this to happen. Totally. I think it was $4 billion, and I think that was the last private round, which was less than a year ago. But I apologize. We dramatize for effect here on Acquired, but by any measure, this is nuts. <laughs> totally. The question kind of becomes about this company. Is it a platform for games? Is it the next generation of what social networks look like? Is it a remnant of kind of an esoteric game designery thing from 15 years ago based on a physics engine? Uh, the answer is probably all three of these things. So we're going to dive in here today on this kind of odd and different LP episode and crossover with Mario. David, tell everyone who Mario is. Yeah, we are so excited to have Mario here with us. We were introduced by friend of the show and former LP show guest himself, Jake Saper over at Emergence Capital. We've just been super impressed with Mario's writing over at The Generalist, which uh, so less than a year you've been doing this now, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, depends, I guess, how you calculate it. I was probably writing it a little bit on the side for longer than a year, but full time on it since August of last year. So still feels very early innings. Yeah, well, you've built a great audience. We've done some fun collaborations. Uh, we did a clubhouse together with Packy McCormick the other day, and we were jamming with Mario a couple of weeks ago about stuff we could do together. And Roblox just seemed like such a natural topic because of all the buzz around this IPO. And of course, you spearheaded the S1 Club and published the S1 Club analysis of their S1. Um, just came out last week and I think is basically the Bible on the topic. So we thought, you know, we certainly I am thinking about, is this a stock that I want to own, make part of my portfolio? You know, who better to talk about this than you? And we thought, let's just hit record and share it with everybody. So we'll link to the S1 Club piece on Roblox in the show notes for people who want to follow along, but go over to readthegeneralist.com no longer on Substack, get your own platform, owning your own audience. 
Love it. Going even indier than going indie. So indie these days. <laughs> <laughs> so indie. Love it. It's great. We're members. We're premium members. So worth it. Everybody go check it out. Well, David, before we dive in, I do want to say this is not investment advice. We are not professional stock pickers. We may have interests in the companies we discuss on the show in this episode. Just wanted to tell everybody that. With that out of the way, and this being a hugely important IPO or actually direct listing, we did want to discuss all the different lenses to look at this company, including the bear and bull case. So David, with all that out of the way, take us in. Woo. Okay. <laughs> well, unlike a regular acquired episode, we're not going to do the full history and facts, but we have to start with a few and Mario can jump in and help us here. And then we'll go through all the great analysis that he did. But this company, I mean, is crazy as has been alluded to in the intro. So November 19th, 2020, just a few short months ago, filed their S1. And then less than a month later, after the Airbnb and DoorDash IPOs went crazy as we discussed on this show they pulled the listing said that the market conditions it's not that the window had closed the window was too open <laughs> it was too open to go out and instead did this private financing at just a hair under 30 billion dollar valuation raised over half a billion dollars led by altimeter and dragoneer announced that they would go public in a direct listing in early 2021. Rumors are that could be as soon as a couple of weeks from now, sitting here at the beginning of February. It's quite the story. So we're going to step through kind of each section of the S1 Club piece and start with the history, as always. Mario, if you want to jump in and, and take us from here, who is Dave Bazuki, the CEO? What is his background? How did we end up with this crazy Lego slash Second Life thing. Well, someone who I, I think knows David fairly well described him as sort of the first true James Halliday character from Ready Player One, sort of this massive maker and dreamer of, of fantasy worlds. And you can sort of see the early signs of that in Interactive Physics, which is the company that he and his brother founded in 1989. And Interactive Physics basically, you know, for those that you know, were in, in high school around that time, they, they might remember it, was sort of this little wonkish game where you could set up a ramp or, you know, a pulley system or just these different objects that simulate movement and momentum and so forth. And the idea was that you could get a sense for the actual forces of physics. And so it was supposed to be educational, but ended up getting used quite a lot as essentially a game. And so Bazuki even, he said, users of interactive physics software used it for fun rather than school. Kids would build all kinds of funny contraptions with the product. And so that really ended up setting the tone, I think, for this sort of builder game world that, that became Roblox later. Yeah, it's funny how with some of these things, you know, you need to put software out in the world and then just watch what people do with it. They had no intention to build a game system, but you got to follow the use case when people are using it for that. Yeah, exactly. It's like the old like TI calculators, right? which I'm sure kids don't use anymore. But Oh, I'm sure they do. There was like some kind of weird regulatory capture monopoly type thing there. Well, I know they have an app now that emulates the like 82 and 89, or I guess whatever it is, the TI whatever's. Point being the TI-84 or the TI-83, which were exactly the same thing in slightly different plastic packaging, was $100 in like 1991 and was $100 in 2010. 
and like was mandated by all the textbooks there's something weird going on there yeah definitely something <laughs> weird but like i don't know about you guys but my main use case for that was like playing you know mafia wars and drug 100%. wars <laughs> i don't think i had mafia wars but i remember some more innocent games on there but uh <laughs> so this is foreshadowing of david would be playing very different uh, roblox games than you mario <laughs> yeah exactly well, I guess if you go into the real long tail, there's probably some dark stuff. The, the top end of the distribution is pretty light. Anyway, at Interactive Physics, the brothers Bazuki hire this extremely talented engineer called Eric Kessel. And you guys can correct me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. It could be Castle or Kessel for all I know. You know, he was working at Cornell's physics department doing some really interesting work and read about Interactive Physics in the Mac User Magazine flew out to take an interview and, you know, the three of them ended up building interactive physics and the parent company Knowledge Revolution into a significant business that eventually sells for 20 million bucks to uh, MSC software. And so that's sort of the the end of that chapter one of the Bazuki cassell collaboration. But the two of them keep chatting. And this all happened in Silicon Valley, right? Like Bazuki had gone to Stanford and then I don't know where he's from originally, but kept working on the company there. And so this was during like the software boom, you know, post Silicon, but the software era, the PC era of, of Silicon Valley. Exactly. And as is the case with so many of these stories, they build Roblox out of a small office together in, in 2004 with, you know, a pretty vague remit of what they want to do. But knowing just that they wanted to sort of take that kernel that was the unexpected outcome of interactive physics, this this desire to play and build something around that. And so they build this first iteration called DynaBlocks, which, you know, early on they have to explicitly on the website call out that there is no affiliation with Lego because the worry is that DynaBlocks and later Roblox sounds too similar. The iconography, the avatars, the imagery they use is too similar. And so they have to be explicit that, yes, these are digital Legos, but by a different company altogether. And Lego is sort of famously very protective of their intellectual property. Despite the fact that you could go get some plastic and injection molded into something in the shape of a Lego, you'll notice that there's really not any of those on the market. And that is because they are hardcore about making sure that you don't build a system that rips them off or integrates with them, with them in any way. That's super interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. They certainly did not want to fall foul of them early on. But definitely at the same time, you know, the fact that these were sort of block-like cartoony characters in a digital world, they knew that this was going to hold some appeal for kids. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a familiarity there. Okay, so in 2004, they start Dinoblocks. That becomes Roblox. And then I think it's at the end of 2006, right, that they launch into the world. They work on it for two years and then launch this product. It's actually a suite of products. Like, it's kind of crazy to think this happened in 2006. People think of Roblox, think little Nas X, they, you know, all this. But it's not just that. What is this system? Yeah, I mean, it started out with a sort of more simplified version of what today is the Roblox client. And so you basically had a hangout spot and your friends had hangout spots and you could sort of jump over to each other's little virtual homes and mess around, have fun, socialize. Over time, that evolved into the sort of more complex gameplay you have now that sort of compromises the Roblox client. But when you look at the product suite today, it's really these three different lines. You have 
the Roblox client, you have the Roblox studio, and then you have the Roblox cloud. And each of those sort of fit into this ecosystem. I don't know the full history of Second Life. We're going to have to like (laughs) pull all this together on a future episode. Basically, it's kind of like Second Life for kids is what this quickly evolves into, right? Yeah, or just like totally open world, infinite iteration sims. You know, the client is the place that people are probably most familiar with. It's where you log in as a player of games and navigate to one of the 18 million titles they have on there. That's so insane. It's nuts. The funny the funny part is that 6 million have never been played, which... Oh, so it's like podcasts. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you guys are like the shinobi life of tech podcasts right up there. <laughs> so there's 18 million games we're cheating hardcore and flashing all the way forward to today. Mario, do people go into Roblox and do stuff just in Roblox? Or is it like the Epic Game Store where like there's really nothing to do in the outer layer? You have to go into a game to do something. I'm very likely to utter a shibboleth in saying this because I have not played as much Roblox as I'm sure many, but I believe you really don't get into the meat of it beyond like you know, decorating your avatar and you can sort of make some cosmetic changes to your like very local little house space before you jump into a game. But again, this is based on my minimal experiences playing Adopt Me and preparing for this. (laughs) I guess where I'm going with that is like Roblox, despite being open world because there are so many games to go play, there's 18 million of them, most of the activity actually happens inside those games. And when you say open world, it's because there's a you know, a ton of games you could play and it's not terribly hard to build a game yourself. When you're comparing that with like a, you know, Second Life or The Sims where it truly is like an open world, like there's no guidance, no game mechanics. It's just like, okay, like now you get to walk around digitally. Yeah, I mean, I think each of the games themselves in some respect like take on that quality. So if you go into Welcome to Blocksburg, a lot of the activities are you working at a pizza place. Or you hanging out in your house and going to high school or whatever those things you want to do are. And that's sort of like, I think a big part of the power is that people now use it just as the watering hole for nine to 13 year olds. And is also where a lot of the challenges I think come in because since socialization is at the heart of it, you know, moderation is not far behind. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so there's an important point up there that is very different than second life and the like which is that roblox isn't making the content or the games it's people on the platform who are making the games and we're going to dive a lot more into this as we go but there is the separate roblox studio product which really these days you know is basically pretty close to unity in terms of like what you're both able to do with it and the complexity and knowledge required to build high quality games and experiences and it's a full-on programming environment game development editing platform and it's separate from the client right it's like unity but it only works on roblox like you can't you release your game anywhere you can release it everywhere where roblox has a client app exactly yeah the sort of innovation i suppose there is the use of this programming language lua I think that's the pronunciation, but 
that simplifies the process of creating a game greatly. And that has allowed younger folks, you know, children to create games of their own. And, and over time, you know, as they grow up, the games mature as well. But it's sort of, you know, this on-ramp to game development and it's pretty clever and from a business strategy perspective in the sense that if you can give someone the tools to earn money early on as a young game developer and sort of attach them to that asset, then there's obviously an ongoing incentive for them to keep building it, even if they themselves might age out of using the platform. It's just like interactive physics and the TI calculators, like you can consume, and you know, most kids mostly myself included i did a little bit of tinkering but mostly i was just playing games that like i downloaded from my friends that they had downloaded from other people on my calculator but like if you want you can open up basic right there in the calculator and like make your own games totally well listeners this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on acq2 quarter their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. So Mario, take us forward from 2006. Like, how's it go when they launch it? And do they launch with all three of these components, the, the cloud, the studio, and the client all at once? You know, I actually don't know if all three of them launch at once. I'm pretty confident in saying that both studio and client launch at once. But I would imagine that cloud must have been at least greatly changed over time as they've gone so cross-platform. You can access Roblox on, you know, Every mobile device, VR headsets, PC, Mac, et cetera, 
And that's been pretty key is that, you know, if you're a kid, you can just jump into it wherever you want. But to return to your question, it's a pretty slow go for Roblox after 2006. They don't raise a ton of money. Altos Ventures was the first outside investor. You know, their Series C was $2.9 million, And it's really only... That's the letter C, not seed. That's yes. C. Yes. Their third yeah. round of funding. Yeah, exactly. I assume it must have just been friends and family before that, and they just called it A and B. That was the, the first institutional. And that was in 2008, I believe, I think. That sounds right. I think it was. Yeah, I think they're operating for a couple of years. This is such a case study of like exponential growth and <laughs> economics and an economy itself. Like for years, there was nothing going on here, you know, by venture community standards. You know, they were operating for two years with no institutional funding. And then the first round came in. And then the next round and then, you know, several others after that, the company was making money operating profitably or break even ish, but this didn't attract a lot of attention until people started to realize like, wow, this is a whole economy going on here. So let's get into the business model of how this works. And just to color what David is saying there with a stat that Mario pointed out in the S1 club over the first 12 years of operation, they only raised $11 million. Saying it was not a darling of the venture community for its first dozen years is a wild understatement. Compare that to, you know, companies growing today and uh, raising venture dollars in, in today's environment. It also speaks to, I think, how much venture's view of gaming writ large has changed over that period with, you know, companies like Twitch and Epic and everything else that have also, you know, risen in prominence similarly. But it's really only in 2017 when Bazuki mentions that Roblox is starting to get some network effects. And, and maybe we'll talk about this when we talk about the seven powers later that the money starts really pouring in. David, back to your earlier question. Let's talk about the economy. So how does the business model work, Mario? So this is one of the the parts of Roblox that I think is most interesting is that there is this thriving economic system and it's quite a idiosyncratic one in many many respects. So basically Roblox makes money by selling users Robux. And so that's their in-game currency. You as a user are buying Robux to buy in-game experiences, to buy cosmetic items for your avatar. And all of those items, or the vast majority, are created by developers on the platform. And so essentially, Roblox is engaging in a revenue split with the creator of those objects and experiences, and a pretty steep one, in fact. Yeah, so there's an exchange rate, right, that Roblox sets. They're like the central planners of the economy between USD, or I assume lots of other currencies too, and Robux, users buy in, they buy Robux, you know, at a certain rate, but then developers or anybody can cash out back to USD, I assume at a much lower rate. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a clever default, but if you're a developer and you earn money from one of your games, for example, you are first paid in Robux. And so, you know, not only is the, <laughs> the rate of exchange lower, but also there's the sort of implicit temptation that you might just use your Robux back on the platform and, you know, spend it on someone else's game and so forth. And if I'm a 15-year-old game developer who's like, hey, look, I made my first game. This is super fun. And I, I get some Robux. Like, 
there's, I'm not going to cash with that. You know, it's, it's brilliant that. by Roblox to yeah. <laughs> binge, <laughs> gonna binge that on garlands for your avatar's hair. <laughs> and so what is that exchange rate? I know there's some complexity and they are clever with subscription models, but like if I just put a dollar in or if I just put what, whatever it is in, how many Robux do I get just for a one-time purchase? So on the developer side, the exchange rate is set by Roblox at $0.0035 per Robux. On the buyer side, they, they really try and push you towards packages directly from the site, obviously because of sort of app store cuts, and we can we can talk more about that. But it's cheaper for me to get Robux directly from the Roblox website than it would be to get them on the iPhone. Exactly, exactly. And so you can buy, you know, the, the packages that we highlight here are sort of 80 Robux for 99 cents or 450 Robux for 4.99 a month. And that's another way they sort of play with the value is pushing you towards subscription rather than a one-off bulk purchase. Hmm. So it sounds like on that one-off purchase, they're kind of taking effectively a 20% cut just on the purchase, right? Because you're getting 80 Robux. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to think through an entire transaction where someone puts money into the system and then it flows through and then a developer gets money out of the system. Sort of how much does Roblox get to keep along the way from the time the consumer puts it in until the developer can pull it out? I think it very much depends on how the Robux was purchased and time in the system, right? Like there's a time element to this too and how many times it recirculates in the system. There's two super brilliant, really novel things about this that exist in other virtual economies too. But one is that there's no transaction cost that Roblox has to bear. So like if they were operating a marketplace for games like Steam or whatnot, like users would buy stuff in USD, they would have to process all that payment. Those dollars would have to get shipped off to the developers. So like Stripe or somebody is making money here (laughs) and it's hard to do all that. With Roblox, once the dollars come into the system, it's all native, right? Like, <laughs> right. So there's a payment processor required upon buying your Robux, but after that, you can have tons of transactions at effectively zero cost instead of incurring credit card fees every time. Which then they do. Then, like, it recirculates in the system. So, like, you know, if you're making Robux as a developer, yeah, you can, you know, binge on it, but also you can, like, well, I don't know, Mario, might, you might know, but I'm assuming you can build into your game or your experience distributing Robux back out to your users of your game as part of like the economy of the game. And then they can just recycle on and on and on and on and on within the system. However long they remain in the system, it's like an interest-free loan to Roblox. I actually don't know about that specific case, but I think the principle regardless is definitely true. That working capital thing is so interesting. Part of the reason that they're not public yet is because of this sort of question around how they're doing accounting for Robux in the system. But if you just pop up a level from like caring about the minutia of how exactly they're doing the gap there, they're totally getting an interest-free loan and they totally have a negative cash conversion cycle where they get all this money before anybody has to do anything with it. And then it could be a lot of time before they need to pay any of that out to developers. If ever. Wild. Definitely. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. The tough part of the problem is really that the developers often end up with a very small proportion of 
the total spent on their experience or in their game. So Roblox themselves estimates that it's about 24.5% of the transaction that goes to the developer. A few sort of deeper Reddit community forums in the Roblox world suggest it's below 20% at like 19.7. But that is not just one of those figures that maybe makes you raise an eyebrow, but it also sort of gestures towards one of the fundamental worries that that people might have about Roblox, which is whether they'll be able to keep developer talent happy for the long run, especially as this war for good developers heats up. Did I just hear you right that you only get to keep 20 to 25% as the developer, whereas if I'm releasing an app on the App Store, I keep 70%? Exactly. Why am I developing for Roblox? (laughs) I think I tweeted about this yesterday. A takeaway that Ben, you pointed out, was actually really insightful from our episode with Alfred Lin on Sequoia's playbook. There's two ways you could have high gross margins. You could be a software business that sells software and have high gross margins for that. But that's deceptive because like there are transactions that people are accomplishing with your software. You're not taking a percentage of that. You're like low gross margin on the net and transactions. Or you can be a sort of full stack company or a marketplace where you're running the whole system. And those tend to be lower margin businesses. Some of those businesses are high margin, like Facebook or Google, like they run the whole system and they yeah, are high Facebook doesn't pay businesses. a dime out to creators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or Instagram. In cases where it's possible to sustain that, the only way that's possible is if you have an immense amount of power in the Hamilton-Helmer sense, because otherwise all your users would j- just leave you. We'll get to this as we go along. But like clearly Roblox has an immense amount of power it's all within the ecosystem, like the users that are using the client, they're playing the games, the games are made for the client, like you could not like that as a developer. But if you want to access these 150 million users, well, you got to do Roblox. So you're saying that like, it's not actually apples to apples. There's there's like very few developers who are out there saying, should I make an app store game? Or should I make a Roblox game? They're going to Roblox users and saying, make Roblox better, we'll even pay you for doing some of it in the same way that Snap has sort of experimented with like you snap more and like, we'll pay you for being on the social network and, and enriching it with great content. Exactly. And also, I think just the sheer fact that it is a less mature audience in many respects that, you know, come in probably first as a player of this game, the attention is captured. And then, you know, there's this opportunity to build world sort of on top of that. And it's maybe less of a financial calculation at that stage of the user's life. Right. It's like you could build stuff in Minecraft, you know, great. Lots of people and kids do. You could build stuff in Roblox and then make some money from it. And it's like, oh, great. I learned how to develop, how to develop and I learned how to run a business. Exactly. You know? And then all that IP gets locked into the Roblox uh, universe. Mario, did you do any research on like who these top game developers are? Like are some of these stories of like a 15-year-old who got crazy rich who has a, a hit game on Roblox? They're definitely on the young side. So I, I can't remember which game it is at this point. I want to say it's Meep City, but it could be a different one. I think it was essentially modified from a different game, sort of heavily inspired by previous games, started without a huge amount of of fanfare and then metamorphosized into a hit game. More broadly, looking at the S1, Roblox highlights a few of their developers, and they're probably slightly, you know, trying to spin the narrative in a certain direction, but they're all on the very, very young side. There's (laughs) There's no photos of like, 
a 48 year old dude running a roblox game that's crushing it it's like a 21 year old <laughs> who was playing it for 10 I, years i'm sure they exist out there i know there are definitely older folks in studios that are making roblox games but ben to your point that's less attractive you have to really believe you're going to get a lot of users in roblox to do that versus oh i'll build in unity or i'll build in unreal and i'll ship to every platform and keep 70 percent of what i make okay so let's talk about the market because i think you did a really good job mario breaking down like all this sounds great lots of power but like we're, we're talking about kids games here like what <laughs> how big is this what's the tam what's the opportunity one thing to say about the S1 Club that I, I think we haven't necessarily hit on yet is that it is a very collaborative effort. And so I want to say that Alice Lloyd George, who's a great VC, did, I think, a lot of amazing research on the market section in particular. And, you know, that's true throughout is that it really is a collaborative effort. But digging into the market, we've seen over the past few years, and we touched on this, just how much Venture's interest in gaming has grown. And that's really because it's become a massive market. I mean, it's a $159.3 billion market as of 2020, growing almost 10% a year, expected to reach $200 billion by 2023. And there are some specific characteristics of gaming that make it particularly attractive. It's so funny you say growing at 10% year over year, because I do remember a few years ago when we interviewed, I can't remember if it was Nolan Bushnell or Trip Hawkins, David, but whichever one it was commented, it's crazy. I invented video games for the consumer market, and now it's over a $100 billion market. And it, like it's literally compounded two to three years since then at 10% per year. And yeah, and it's exceeded most expectations. I remember looking back at some of the you know previous estimations. And I think, you know, it's outperforming, certainly. The statistic that we actually didn't use in here, but I think it's something like 3x the growth rate of gaming versus other forms of media, whether that's, you know, film or TV, etc. So it's capturing more and more of that attention, particularly amongst younger audiences. The whole Fortnite phenomenon over the last few years, which is a probably a slightly older age demographic than than Roblox, you know, I think just shows like the for younger generations, these aren't just games. These are, you know, what they're doing instead of watching Netflix. <laughs> or instead of social networks. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Or instead of Instagram. It's entertainment and social networks. Both of those markets were growing on their own anyway, but gaming is just for a certain audience combining them together. Mm -hmm. So if you think about like Roblox has the youngest users, if, and there's a big if that we will get into as we get farther along in the episode, if they can keep these young users with this is like Netflix plus Instagram for them or Netflix plus WhatsApp, Think about the value that that's going to generate, you know, and 50%, right? Is that what you said, Ben, in the intro? 50% of... Of sub 15-year-olds, I, th I think in the US, use this product in the last 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> so there's also a really interesting piece of the market here in China, right, Mario? Yeah, exactly. So Roblox has done an amazingly good job capturing the US. Asia Pacific is a colossal market. I think the number on that is 72.2 billion market size as of 2019. So you can really see that it's you know, essentially 50% of the market. And so Roblox has been, I think, very pragmatic about entering China. They have entered into an agreement with Tencent through sort of a JV, 
where they own 51% of this China entity and Tencent owns 49%. And Tencent's role is really to walk Roblox past the governmental licensing roadblocks and allow them to operate there. And, and they've successfully done that, it looks like, from the two licenses that they got in December. Tencent is such a freaking juggernaut. Like they, I feel Insane. like they show up in every episode somewhere, David. I mean, they're amazing. But yeah, so in China, you need a license to operate a game. This has been true for a long time. And didn't they like pause licenses for games like a couple of years ago? That they did. The- well, so Tencent, you know, as, as we covered way back on our episode with them, Tencent really originated, well, not in the very, very beginning, but it was galloping uh, messages in the beginning. It was, it was QQ, an ICQ knockoff, but then got into gaming. And so Tencent was an operator of many games in China and got the licenses, built those relationships with the government there and has an established track record of bringing Western games into China, you know, League of Legends, et cetera. And, and so what you're referring to, Ben, is is Honor of Kings, which is the mobile version of League of Legends that Tencent then developed in-house after they'd acquired League of Legends. People started playing it so much in China that the CCP revoked their license temporarily. So there's no way to operate in China without the strength of somebody like Tencent that has those relationships that you know can get Honor of Kings like back reinstated. No Western company is going to be able to do that. Right. Looking at power dynamics, like if what Tencent is doing is saying, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure that um, you can get to market here. We will take half of the company for that. And, and people are willing to say like, yep, yeah, we'll totally do that. That is like an unbelievably strong power dynamic to be able to provide that value. Yeah. And it's an interesting sort of defensive maneuver also. I mean, we'll get to competition, I'm sure a little bit later, but ReWorld is sort of the Chinese version of Roblox, much less mature, much earlier in its life. But if Roblox paid homage to Lego in its initial incarnation, ReWorld is very much worshipping at the shrine of Roblox. <laughs> it's a good move, I think, for plenty of reasons, but you can't discount the fact that it it's certainly going to make the path significantly more difficult for ReWorld. All right, let's talk about management and investors in Roblox. This is a this is a fascinating one. We we talked about Dave and Dave's been there, you know, was founder and CEO. Basically, the whole rest of the management team is like new, <laughs> right? It's an interesting one. I mean, sort of looking into it, you don't see a lot of gaming experience as it happens. You see a lot more retail experience and, you know, even a little bit of sort of social network experience, but even that is not particularly pronounced. It's only really when you get to Roblox's China czar who, you know, had some deep experience at Sega that you sort of see that expressed in any meaningful way. But yeah, the rest of the team is fairly new and from some spaces that you might not necessarily associate with Roblox's core business. So you have um, the CTO, Daniel Sturman, coming from Cloudera. That makes total sense in the sense that like this is a huge infrastructural project to keep up and running and, and has been historically an area of weakness. But you know, not necessarily gaming related. Chief business officer, Craig Donato coming from Nextdoor. Before that, he was a QVC. That's a sort of interesting twist because, you know, Roblox is 
notoriously quite aggressive in upselling in game. And so perhaps that sort of like interactive sale experience is valuable. CMO experience from Walmart. You have a true car experience, some more e-commerce experience. It, it really comes from the gamut. They're not trying to be EA. Like they're trying to be something that covers, you know, a variety of sectors. They, they don't think of themselves necessarily as a game company. I think that's right. They, they describe it in the filing as trying to win over human co-experience. And that is fittingly vague, but also capacious enough to account for, you know, social networking, purchasing, e-commerce, et cetera. It's so funny. Sort of Just like a meta point on this. Like, I can't believe we both just said meta at the same time. It's like a meta <laughs> point on this. These incredibly vague market definitions are so, on the one hand, like highfalutinly ludicrous. On the other hand, like they're trying to paint that we literally, anytime where two people are connecting over something, like we could foreseeably address that in the future. So when you're trying to estimate our total addressable market, like you should be in the high trillions. And like, <laughs> it's, it's like sort of BS. But on the other hand, you're like, they're definitely not a gaming company. So how else do you want to describe it? For almost anything else, I think you sort of are tempted to laugh it out of the room. But with something like Roblox, you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, human co-experience sounds you know, a, a little bombastic, but it doesn't feel far <laughs> off. It's like by a matter of degree rather than by a matter of order. You do this cool thing in the S1 club where you have word counts of things that appear in the in the S1, how, how many times different words appear, you know, and metaverse is one of the ones that appear on there. Uh, you know, it is very Tim Sweeney, you know, epic-like the ambitions of this company. To me, it makes a lot of sense, regardless of whatever marketing jargon they want to use to describe it. It makes a lot of sense that like, no, you know, executives from EA, from, you know, Activision Blizzard, like, well, maybe Activision Blizzard with, you know, and Blizzard particularly with World of Warcraft is is pretty similar here. But like, if you're used to making like packaged software, th that's not what's happening here. They're doing a couple things. They're operating cloud technology on the scale of like, you know, AWS, you know, <laughs> Google, like, you know, uh, the same scale as as Epic with Unreal. And then they're operating a, a, an economy just like Google or Facebook, uh, you know, the like, you know, they're not making content. They're operating an economy. 100%. Before we move on from this point of, of talking about other metaverse type companies, if you would have asked me like five, six, seven years ago, who was going to own this space? And obviously, that was well before Fortnite came out, or I even really was in development. So like, I wouldn't have told you it's going to be epic. 100% chance I would have told you it was Minecraft. Is it just getting bought by Microsoft? Or how is Minecraft not the company that we're talking about right now that's a great question is, is it like that they had a strategic misstep because i assume their user base is also extremely large and has continued to grow since being acquired by microsoft i think that's right i mean there's a statistic in here that 50 percent of 9 to 12 year olds in the u.s canada new zealand and australia play either roblox or minecraft if Roblox has sort of overtaken them a little bit, it's no mean feat. Minecraft is still incredibly popular. And interestingly, Roblox purchased this company called Code Kingdoms, used to be called Cyber, that basically teaches young game developers how to build games. And it offers classes both for Roblox and for Minecraft. I still suspect there's a huge amount of overlap there. But to your point, it does feel like selling to Microsoft sort of 
fundamentally change the trajectory and ambitions of, of that business. Yeah, let's see. I'm on businessofapps.com. So, you know, we're doing this live. So caveats about how reputable the source is. But it's from, I think, Sensor Tower, PC Mag. So 2020, there were 131 million Minecraft users. Mario, how many users were there on Roblox? I think we have 150, something like that. 150 MAU. Right. So yeah. right, right in the same league. And then on revenue, Minecraft did in 2020 about 415 million. What was top line revenue for roblox well bookings was about 1.3 there we go which, yeah <laughs> yeah we, we'll, we'll get into this in a minute but bookings is the number to look at but i wonder if it's the same for minecraft you know like i wonder if we should be looking at bookings there too i'm going way out on a limb here but you know there's the microsoft acquisition that may have derailed minecraft's economy building a little bit my understanding, so I'm way out on a limb. My understanding is that Minecraft experiences in Minecraft that are not centralized operate on servers. And so you have to run your own server if you're going to host a Minecraft experience. Whereas this is where, you know, we were talking about Roblox being a cloud company. That's not the case in Roblox. Like it's all centralized in the Roblox cloud. I would imagine that significantly hampers their developer creator tam in minecraft like in roblox it's like oh i want to like start building a game and creating like great roblox takes care of everything for me there whereas mike are like oh i gotta set up a server i gotta run a server like presumably it's also considerably less flexible right like i think minecraft games all share more aesthetic dna and it also feels like Minecraft themselves push their own games or sort of like game themes, so to speak, more expressly than Roblox does. So in that respect, you know, Roblox probably benefits from the UGC element a bit more directly. Yeah, I think that. And Roblox Studio is a very powerful application. Like it really is basically Unity. Like you can build anything. You're not just using like templates and building blocks in there. At risk of over-summarizing, very similar user counts between Minecraft and Roblox, but Roblox has managed to monetize at probably over 3x, at least in, in the last year where Minecraft was. Well, before we get into <laughs> talking about accounting, <laughs> which is going to be the most dramatic Ooh. part of this episode, yeah. for real. <laughs> Some accountants out there are like, finally, our moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! We pulled the e-brake heading off the cliff and then we you know, changed revenue to bookings. Investors, got to give shout outs to huge friends of all of ours and um, you know, at Altos, who we've, we've mentioned. Love Altos. As the first institutional investors in, in Roblox. Wonderful wonderful investors not well known and they like it that way but uh very very different dna and mentality than the rest of silicon valley and then my former firm where i worked as an intern when i was at gsb ameritech came in as the first uh growth investors in the company when things uh gosh i can't remember which round meritech came in but they came in um i think it was the same round that meritech and index co-led once growth really started to pick up but that was i think that was where the company had only raised 11 million dollars before then and then I've invested in every round since. You know, now uh, there's Index, there's Andreessen and Horowitz, and of course Altimeter and Dragoneer now. It's quite the list. It, it is quite the list, but that's all in the last, you know, recent few years. Just the mindset of this company is not the traditional Silicon Valley for a long time. Well, it's like, this is the playbook you should run. Like, you want to raise as little capital as possible and be profitable until you know for damn sure 
you have a runaway success on your hands and then go raise a ton of capital all at once on your terms. And this barbell way that they sort of ran the company, uh, very similar to how Epic Games was run, very similar to how I think we had we talked with Vlad about this. It was because he couldn't get funding for Webflow for all those years. And then boom, Excel's 80 something million dollar round. I'm sure they had plenty of dilution happen in those early years. In fact, by looking at the percentages that these early investors still own, we know they took a lot of dilution in the early years with with Roblox. But if you can raise little capital until you're a runaway success and then raise a lot, that just seems like the way to do it. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's talk about accounting. (laughs) Here we go. Okay, so we were talking about the business model, right? And this recycling of capital and the economy. As you can imagine, this makes for a nightmare for Gap accounting. <laughs> so the company reports bookings, which is dollars flowing into the system in any given period. But then some portion of those dollars flowing into the system will ultimately get paid back out to developers. And so there's a very complicated revenue recognition <laughs> formula here that essentially makes no sense, but uh, you got to have something, I guess. What did they try to do? And then what did they have to change to? I actually don't know what the change is going to be, and that'll be very interesting. But the sort of trickiness here is that there's this accounting standard called the Accounting Standards Codification 606, ASC 606. Should be 666. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) That was imposed upon public companies starting in 2019. And, you know, for the most part, that's sort of fine. But gaming companies in particular are not very well served by it because of sort of the strange economies and the the strange purchases that you might make on a gaming platform. So in Roblox's case, they have to recognize their revenue, not when someone purchases the Robux on the platform or when that person spends Robux, but over this sort of indeterminate or amorphously defined LTV period, this lifetime. So, and, so that was the craziest thing reading the S1 Club, Mario, was like when the second shoe dropped, like when you're like, it's not when people buy the Robux. I'm like, oh, that's tricky because they're going to have to figure out how to account for the amount of time between when someone buys the Robux and when they spend the Robux. But no, it's what is your LTV? Like, or what is your customer lifetime? Is it amortized across the customer lifetime? Yes, yes, exactly. And Grof, who is an anonymous Twitter account, who's very brilliant about this space, really spearheaded this and also did some hilarious writing here. So I think he managed to make <laughs> accounting seem, seem very, very funny. But yes, exactly. Roblox's obligation to you as a user doesn't cease once you spend your Robux because presumably, you know, in some instances at least, you spent it on a digital item, whether that's a crown or a piece of armor or whatever that is. And so that in and of itself becomes sort of a manifestation of that value that Robux needs to keep servicing. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit convoluted and makes it not the most legible. You know, we'll talk about narratives in a second around this company. Mostly, I mean, the narrative is is <laughs> to the moon on this company. <laughs> to the extent there is a bear narrative, one of them is this company is losing massive amounts of money and is unprofitable. That's just wholesale false and is a consequence of this accounting. So if you look at you know the revenue and their net income, yes, they are net income negative. But what you should really do is essentially take their top line bookings number, which is dollars flowing into the system, which for the first three quarters of 2020, we don't yet have fourth quarter 2020 was 
$1.25 billion. If you want to be really conservative, you could haircut 20% out of that. That's eventually going to go back to developers. Okay, fine. You know, do that. You're still sitting on a billion in top line. The company is printing lots of money. It's very free cash flow positive. Dude, their EBITDA margins are 25 to 28%. Like that's, that's not like quite Facebook territory, but that's like on its way. And for a high growth company too. So being hyper conservative would be stripping out the 20%. Being less conservative would say these bucks, Robux are going to circulate in the system a few times before they pop out. So like, yeah, 20% will get popped out eventually over like three or four years or maybe longer. So, you know, you could time discount that back to like, maybe you haircut this by 5%. Dude, this is the Warren Buffett playbook. This is float. This is like the brilliance of owning an insurance company. Roblox doesn't seem to be doing this, but they have so much, effectively a gigantic crowdsource interest-free loan that's just sitting there that they could do other things with. And anybody who's describing this company as an unprofitable company right now, I think doesn't realize that in, in some ways that huge liability is actually an underutilized asset. Hmm. That's a good framing. Yeah, totally agree. And then on the growth side, so the bookings for the first nine months of 2020 tripled <laughs> versus bookings for the first nine months of 2019. Which is a pandemic related. Right. Of course, it's driven by the pandemic, but still nuts. <laughs> <laughs> still a little a little nuts. From 18 to 19, they grew, what, about 50% top line bookings, I think? Yeah, that sounds right. I think a little over 50%, maybe like 60%. They went from 500 million to just under 700 million. So no, no, that would be, that would be more like 40%. Anyway, lots of high growth tailwinds at their back here too. And what we're painting here in both that stat that I threw out on the EBITDA margin napkin math and on what you're talking about and how they're able to scale, this is just a tech company. This is like a pure play tech company. I should give credit to Scott Galloway on Pivot. He pointed out 79% Professor of their, gold takes. <laughs> their 79% of their full-time staff are engineers. Like if what you want to do is invest in technology businesses on the internet because they have zero marginal costs and zero distribution costs, not only is that true, they also don't have like salespeople like you would have it like a snowflake or something. They have a bunch of engineers who are building a system that makes games that have digital goods that uses a digital currency. Like this is as sort of technology, internet native a business as you could possibly have. 100% agreed. Yep. That and moderators. Those are sort of the two key <laughs> functions. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because... That is a piece of this, but it's a piece of so many, you know, Airbnb, Rover, Amazon, customer support, moderation, you know, Facebook, Google, like this is an expense that scales. Yes. Although compared to some of those other companies you mentioned, this is, you know, obviously more acute in some respects because of the demographics of the user base over 50% are under 13 years old. It's a place where a lot of socialization happens. And so... You know, there are pretty robust moderation systems in place. I think Roblox serviced something like 9 million tickets or, you know, sort of issues that cropped up last year and their average response time to it was 10 minutes. So they've clearly invested a lot in it. And, you know, we touch on this in the piece, but they've managed to improve 
their efficiency there. That's one of the places where it seems like they've gained some margin, but it still is a massive vulnerability. Well, the vulnerability, a risk, a cost that scales with usage of the system. But also, I mean, I think something that we got to like commend them for too. I mean, of course, there have been issues. I think you guys talk about it in the piece. Roblox dating is like this shadow thing that yes. happens that they're constantly trying to crack down on. But like operating essentially a social environment for underage children around the world and keeping it safe is like an immense task. Yeah, it is a gargantuan effort. And I think they've done some really interesting stuff around text screening to make it more difficult to, you know, say anything explicit. They seem to have built a very good moderation system, you know, that that is human powered behind the scenes as well. The tricky thing is, I wonder how much more difficult that may or may not get as the user base changes over time, like maybe as a larger portion of users are older, they sort of can take a more hands-off approach there. The corollary would be that like maybe as more older users are on the platform, the younger users are potentially more vulnerable to more mature commentary. This is great. I want to get deep into this in competition in a second. So David, I feel like you're going to ask the question, well, are all these people going to stick around after they turn (laughs) 16 and after they start looking at other platforms? Like just because you're capturing the next generation, it's only a good business in the long term if you can keep them. Are they keeping them? That I think is the I was gonna say billion dollar question now, but like billion like billion here, billion there. This company's right. already a twenty nine billion dollar company. <laughs> this is that's the like hundred billion dollar, couple hundred billion dollar question, I think, right? And this I think deserves a, a pretty deep double click here. And honestly, for me, is the biggest reason to give me pause about the stock and the and the DPO. So structurally Everything we just said makes Roblox a fantastic place, uh, beating Minecraft, a fantastic economy, but a fantastic place for kids 13 and under. It was a long time ago when I turned 14, (laughs) but I remember when I turned 14, uh, 13, 14, I didn't want to have anything to do (laughs) with media I was consuming, things I was doing, memes that I was, you know, we didn't call them that then part of when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Right, kid stuff. That's a huge question for Roblox, I think. 100% agree. I mean, I think once you sort of turn 13 or 14, you start to become a little edgelord and want to, you know, take in the most mature media that you're sort of allowed to (laughs) oh yeah i remember i got my hands on uh our family vhs copy of pulp fiction when i was like maybe 13 and i watched (laughs) i probably burned the tape out of that thing (laughs) you're exactly right in identifying that as a key question as to whether a retail investor could expect to make a three plus x on something like this Let's talk about what a three plus X on something like this would be, because what we're talking about right now, even at this $30 billion valuation, if we're being generous and talking about bookings at 1.2, I mean, we're in the category of 25X bookings on the price, and it'll likely be closer to 40, 50X by the time the public actually has access to this thing. You're buying a stock here that's trading at, call it 40X uh, revenue. And of EBITDA, it's probably, and it's not revenue, it's bookings, but of EBITDA, then that's probably 100 to 120x EBITDA. So like already, I mean, tech margins right now are in an insane place, but like 
you know, what do you have to believe about the underlying business's growth in the near future in order to get a 3x on those already very, very, very high multiples? Well, I think you're right to point out that the retail investor is probably not going to get anywhere near it at $30 billion anyway. So a 3x from wherever it sits at the end of IPO day suddenly, I think, looks quite tough. I wouldn't be surprised if we get, you know, reasonably close to a 3x from the last round by the end of you know yeah yeah the first day trading yeah Yeah. (laughs) could i just make a meta point here that these prices just feel so disconnected from the underlying businesses like it feels like what we've decided is that for a certain crop of public companies they're more like currencies like we just did the bitcoin episode they they aren't coupled to an intrinsic value they're much more based on the greater fool theory and because of a collective buy-in and they feel a lot more like currencies than they do something that's strictly tied to the sort of utility value of the underlying asset, which is I am entitled to future cash flows from this thing. You just have to like believe so many insane, like every number on every dimension has to be like at the very maximum of what you could possibly believe. Growth rate, revenue, number of years you want to factor into your DCF to make any of these things fit. So like, Let's just throw it out there right now that if you're going to get a 3x on this thing, it's probably more likely because of hype than it is because the business kicks ass. Oh, I think on any sort of short-term time scale. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Very much depends on time horizon. <laughs> we, we style ourselves, you know, investors. And uh, I think all of us, Mario included, uh, although feel free to speak for yourself, but fans of, you know, compounding, the compounding uh, mindset on this. On Please this be careful with that word i'm immediately <laughs> immediately triggered uh, oh, for those that. that haven't heard that tale check out the six billion dollars stare piece for more context but yes uh that sends a chill down my spine wait wait, wait. <laughs> we're gonna go okay, on this wait. rabbit hole what are you talking about you don't know this uh-uh oh man okay so last i want to say november I, with a collaborator, wrote a piece on public compounders, like companies that you know regularly grow 20% or so a year. It caused a massive kerfuffle because a hedge fund called Durable Capital read the piece and decided that phrases like good to great and compounder were their IP. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I forgot about this. No. Oh, what a kerfuffle. <laughs> what a <laughs> I didn't mean to trigger you. <laughs> you must have been like, what is he talking about? Um, <laughs> no, now com- the word compounder brings, you know, sirens to mind and, you know, all sorts of other terrible things. But um, yes, they threatened to sue me for writing this piece if I didn't take it down. When I asked them why or what words or what claims they were making, they sort of shuffled their feet and threatened to call GC in. And I asked again and still and still. And, you know, it basically just became a question of whether I was going to take this piece down or not and whether people are allowed to use the word compounders or good to great. Thankfully, I had some pro bono representation from a media law firm that was able to sort of back me on this. I shared the story on Twitter and it went a bit nuts because FinTwit was like, this is absurd. Um, people have been talking about these concepts for decades. Ever. Yeah. What nonsense. Can Warren Buffett not use these con- these words? Like, Yes. It was a very strange one. Anyway, that's, that's the rabbit hole. Wow. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that with us. So, David, let's 
talk about time horizon a little bit because I think I made a snotty little joke there about <laughs> near term pop being because of hype. <laughs> I don't know what near term and long term is these days anymore, but. If you're thinking long term and you believe in the markets and the power of this business and the attractiveness and the growth and everything we've just laid out here, the biggest question to think about is, you know, how defensible it's going to be in the long run and competition. And is there anybody else credibly that could come and take this momentum from Roblox? So friend of the show, Nick Fight, the co-founder and CEO of Rec Room in Seattle, who we had on way back in the early days to talk about raising his seed round from Sequoia. Rec Room, and we'll talk about this, I talked to Nick last night, is in many ways Roblox built on modern technology and Roblox for, you know, 14 to 18 plus year olds. So designed for older kids, you're able to do much more, much less restrictions on your communication. And they have also seen incredibly explosive growth through the pandemic and over the past couple of years, they're at about 5 million MAU. So much less than the 150 that Roblox is at, but Rec Room is much younger and growing much faster. They grew over 500% in the past year. They're monetizing at a as well or better than Roblox rate. And they were just VR when we had Nick on. They're like every platform now, right? Yeah. So there are a couple of really important points here. You know, one is, is this user base difference between Roblox, which is really 13 and under and Rec Room, which picks people up as they age out of Roblox. That's an issue for Roblox because of course they could compete, but they can't structurally change a lot of Roblox because it's designed to be a safe environment for younger kids. They would probably have to do, and they've talked about this, maybe having a separate instantiation like roblox you know 13 plus or something (laughs) mature (laughs) yeah roblox mature and then the other you know aspects rec room started in vr and is now on you know mobile console every platform out there uh now on screens you know nick makes a really really great point that if you believe that all of this you know, metaverse type stuff and economies and gaming experiences are going to be going into virtual and augmented reality in the future. It's really hard, if not impossible, to take a platform designed for flat screen experiences and turn it into VR. You can go down, you can go the other way, you can go from VR to flat screens. But the way he explains it is so simple. Like he uses the analogy of Quidditch and basketball. Like if you have a Quidditch team, they could probably play basketball because in Quidditch, it's sort of like basketball, but you're, you're like flying around in the air. <laughs> basketball team would be really hard to go play Quidditch because they're just used <laughs> to two dimensions. <laughs> I love that. So what that means is like when you build a platform for VR, you can do anything with your hands and your body and you can move and uh, have any experience when you build a play a game on a screen, it's usually like hit this button on this controller to jump or hit this button on this controller to use the tool in your hand. And then like your, your avatar performs that action. In VR, you actually do that with your hands. Has anyone ever successfully moved from 2D to 3D? Like I'm trying to think of any of these successful VR things and figure out if, they're, if they come from a 2D predecessor. 
So th- there are, I mean, like Roblox, you can play in VR, but it's the same thing. You can look around in VR and you hit a button on the controller to use the item in your hand. <laughs> Whereas in Rec Room, like you hold the paintball gun and, and you wave it around and you shoot it. <laughs> Interesting. If I can offer a brief defense of Roblox's ability to capture that Please segment. Do. You know, 50% is under 13, but obviously 50% is, is over 13. It's, it's something like 54, 46. But, and 17 to 24-year-olds have been growing at a faster pace than those sort of under 13. And if you look over time at the percentage under 13, it has been declining, albeit by not a huge amount. And I think we've seen, you know, at least some ability to capture an older market in the way that they're offering different aesthetics and the way that they're bringing in people like Lil Nas X. And I think, you know, the fact that they are VR available, at least, suggests they're aware of that. And then my only final defense would be that if you gave Victor Crum and LeBron James a chance to go <laughs> head to head in each sport, I'm taking LeBron every time. Every day. <laughs> I love it. I love well, it. Well, should we just stop the episode there? I mean, I, it's not going to go anywhere but down. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, I, I think it, it, the reality is like uh, this is a rising tide that, you know, all boats are going to lift. But I do think this is really interesting. The the other difference between Rec Room and Roblox is in Rec Room, it's just one platform. There's no separate studio. All the creation happens in Rec Room. So that means that they have a much higher percentage of users who become creators and you can do stuff like remix rooms and experiences like you're in a room great grab it you want to change something about it you want to remix you want to publish it yourself super easy to do you can collaborate with other people on creating inside the app like uh, you don't exit to a separate environment so it'll be fascinating to watch over the coming years how how this plays out. All right. So David, you just gave two bear cases. One was if you believe VR is the future, then you kind of have to believe that at least in this category, that these things should be native VR. And then you painted the other one, which is that they're not going to necessarily be successful in retaining all these users that they get in order to continue compounding them. Mario, great counterpoint that so far, it seems like they actually are doing a pretty good job retaining them and and, and, uh, even acquiring older teens. What other bear and bull cases, like before we move on to bull, I guess, are there any other bear cases that that either of you have? I think the big one for me is really retaining developers. And that seems particularly worrisome just because of the distribution on Roblox already. It's an incredibly top-heavy distribution. So Adopt Me is the top game on the platform. And that has, I think, 3x the number of concurrent players regularly than the number two game, Shinobi Life. It's really the vast, vast majority of the platform is concentrated in the sort of top three, four games. And then, you know, even beyond that on sort of the top 20 games. And so it makes it incredibly hard for any new developer to sort of come in, make a living from it and try and and gain share. And that ends up being a fairly unhealthy dynamic, I think, when you look towards the future of game development and game creation. Do they need more developers? One argument is like it's it's working pretty well. What if they at any given time do just have 10 games and figure out how to make sure that they're getting 10 and they're getting 10 quality ones? I think if you want to extend the LTV and you know, especially appeal to a broader audience, you're going to need 
a lot of different experiences. So I, I would expect definitely some degree of concentration, but it, it feels particularly pronounced here. And it feels like the current version of the platform is not necessarily where they want it to be in terms of demographic appeal. Well, I think it's like the lesson from our TikTok episode, gosh, now like two years ago, that's crazy, about like you want to have dynamism in among the creator economy of people rising and falling and not get locked in. And, and TikTok's done this amazingly well, right? Like why are so many people flocking to TikTok other than like, you know, it's cool. That was a big part of it. But like, why have they done so well where Snap has stagnated? It's because you can break through. Like you can you can be anybody and post something. And if it's cool, you'll get distribution. If that's not the case, you're not going to keep attracting dynamism. Right. Not to mention, it's always interesting as a consumer because the, the content's always completely different and always very timely and a clever remix of everything else that's ever come before on the platform and what's going on in life right now. I think those are spot on the bear cases. We painted lots of bull cases. What's the biggest one? If someone had to walk away and be like, this is why this company is insanely valuable. What's the this? I feel like it comes back to what I think you said at the beginning, Ben, which is like, <laughs> you know, established that entertainment is a massive industry, established that social networks are a massive industry, right in between them and across both of them is is Roblox. It's, you know, this insane mix of the way you want to spend your time instead of watching television and also the way you want to spend your time instead of going to socialize with someone somewhere. So that feels like an incredibly powerful combination that they have effectively found a way to really monetize well. And so that's that's incredibly powerful in my view. I would add to the just the economy aspect of this, which really is a new thing that we haven't seen before like that they operate their own economy where they are the fed <laughs> and they set the exchange rates and they get to not only pay no transaction fees from moving things around but recycle money in the system imagine if facebook or google operated that way that'd be a whole nother order of magnitude of value well and facebook tried with libra yeah they, yeah right so shows how hard it is to bolt on right yep okay great should we should we discuss powers Let's do it. Mario, for folks from the generalists listening, are they familiar with the power framework at all? The seven I would powers? imagine so, but I think uh, a brief synopsis is never uh, amiss. <laughs> all right. We have this section because previously on the LP program, we had a friend of the show, Hamilton Helmer, on uh, who wrote this incredible book called Seven Powers. I decided for here not to put in front of me how he actually describes what power is and just try and articulate it in as plain of English as I can, which is here's why you deserve to have profits. And here's why you deserve to have lots of profits. And if you really want to dig in, it's sort of differential profits above your nearest competitor. And the seven powers are the different types of reasons why you are sort of entitled not only today, but in the future to have sort of enduring, sort of sustainable differential profits over your competitors. And those are counter positioning, scale economies, switching costs, network economies, process power, branding, and cornered resource. And rather than explaining each one, let's just pick one or two or three that we think Roblox has, and then we can sort of define them as we go in describing how it applies to Roblox. I think they have a bunch of them. This will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mario, you want to you go first? Pick your, pick your favorite poison here. Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to sort of just run the gamut, but 
I think, you know, one of the low key ones is counter positioning. You know, games have traditionally been seen as a waste of time by parents by sort of coupling it with education and particularly development, like coding based education. There's sort of few more marketable skills that a parent would, you know, be happy for their kid to learn. And so by sort of framing it in that sense, it has a little bit of counter positioning power. Let's just go down the list. I think it has scale economies on the Roblox cloud, part of the business. And as we talked about, I, without <laughs> without knowing enough about Minecraft, I think is a major advantage that they have over Minecraft, that they're able to centralize all the compute and compute storage, networking, et cetera, resources needed. Switching costs. Switching costs to me feels like the, the, the biggest on the developer side. If you're a teenager who wrote something in Lua and deployed it on Roblox, like not only is that user base not easy to acquire on other platforms, but also the dev tool system is completely different. So you'd need to go pick up a whole new set of skills and hire a whole bunch of new people in order to move to somewhere that's not Roblox. So it feels like there's just a tremendous amount of lock-in on the developer side. I think on the user side too. Mario, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I was only, I was going to echo that, which is, you know, you sort of accumulate all of this wealth and social capital that has no transfer system. So, you know, it's like owning old money of some ancient empire that now you can't use in the present day unless, you know, you are in that milieu. It's not just the Robux. It's also the stuff you buy with the Robux, like your avatar, your skins, your outfits, your all your history, all the stuff you have in the game. like That allows you to flex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Network economies, duh. Uh, like Roblox with no friends is <laughs> not very interesting. It's like me being on Roblox. <laughs> process power is so elusive. Like the canonical definition uh, Hamilton uses for process power is the Toyota production system. I don't think something like that exists here. And it's a rare one to have, as is cornered resource. The only argument I would make is by using Lua and you know, having that system built around it, have they made it uniquely easier to create games? Would that fit the bill or is that too far? It's interesting. I mean, it's definitely easier than Unity and Unreal. Mm -hmm. It's not as easy as Rec Room, though. Mm -hmm. So probably not. Feels like it has to be a little more unique. Trying to remember the formal definition of process power. The thing that I do remember uniquely about it is that it can't really be fully duplicated because it's so complex that you can't pick it up and bring it to another organization because there's so many components that you can't like write it all down in a book and be like, go execute this book. Yeah, that's why um, Hamilton used the Toyota production system of like, they open sourced it. They were like all other car companies, every you know, other industries come to Japan, learn, study from us, learn combat and like, Nobody can do it like Toyota. And they're like, we're not trying to. It's just like it's so embedded in the That's pretty cool. organization. Hmm. Branding is interesting. I'm always tempted to use branding, but I think it, it often it's something else masquerading underneath. So the way I always think about this is if you have two commodities that you're holding in each hand and one is branded with Tiffany's and one is branded with, you know, Ben's ABC item that you can't charge nearly as much or generate nearly as much profit on on Ben's ABC item. I don't really know that that exists here. I think every reason why Roblox can make more money than anybody else is sort of attributed to all the other powers that have sort of 
built up the success of the business, not because they have this brand that people are willing to pay more for. I think that's probably right. I think, you know, there maybe is some argument that they've taken some of the brand magic from Lego and, you know, reapplied it in a slightly different way and, you know, can piggyback off that to some extent. But I I think you're right. I don't think it feels like that's one of their core strengths. Well, they have, um, shoot, I'm blanking on the name, but the Chinese competitor. Reworld. Yeah, Reworld is doing the same thing to them. So, yeah, that doesn't feel that powerful to me. I think they do have corner resources, though. I think the corner resources are the existing games and experiences on the system. Like, you can't port those out. (laughs) They're not going to work on, you know, outside of Roblox. Wait, but the definition of a cornered resource is something that you can port out that can be identically valuable for a competitor. But I think it's that that the competitors can't access. Hmm. I was just thinking about this from the way that Packy defined this in the uh, uh, Super Sapiens idea, that that contract would be equally valuable to another competitor, but Super Sapiens was the one who locked it down. But then didn't we get the lithium mining guy who was like, hell no, that's not a cornered resource. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I think Hamilton uses patents. Yeah. Preferential access to a valuable you know, resource such as a blockbuster drug. But those games aren't equally valuable to another competitor. That's what I'm saying. Like, because another competitor doesn't have all the shit that makes it valuable. The user base, the Robux, the... It feels like all of these definitions are almost a little bit on a spectrum. Maybe that, you know, Helmer would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I know what you mean, David. I mean, it feels like a very valuable thing that they have sole proprietary ownership over. Yeah. So we we may be butchering the definition of quartered resources. If we are, we apologize. But I don't think that like these these games, even if the developers were to leave, the games that exist in Roblox cannot exist elsewhere. Why? Why not? I totally think they can. Well, they were written in Lua for Roblox. Like you can't uh, you could go recreate them, but you can't like move the games and their user bases over. And their user bases. That's the thing that you're throwing out because that's why I don't think it's it's a corner because uh, the user base isn't a cornered resource. You literally could go write a thing that takes Lua and spits out something that looks like, you know, that Lua based game in the Roblox runtime. And like maybe the Roblox runtime is sort of a cornered resource, but isn't the IP potentially a cornered resource from the game? Probably. That seems fair that like you couldn't ship an iOS game with the same IP as a Roblox game without getting sued. That feels reasonable. But is that the reason why Roblox is able to be super profitable? I don't think so. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Okay. Maybe no cornered resource. I only try and be strict on these because like I feel like I could apply all of them to every business and then like I go and I reread the book and I'm like, oh, Hamilton was actually like way more narrow in how he defined this than I've always thought about it. Semantics, it's a fun section to do. We end up sort of debating what did Hamilton really mean half the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is we just need Hamilton, you know, to on the show join every us episode. for a, a part two on uh, yeah. <laughs> every we section. Just, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. should just dial him up. Here's the power <laughs> section. We're uh, calling Hamilton in just for this moment. Yeah. Play judge. We can each yeah, plead our cases. Yeah, that's right. As we wind down here, we should say again, not investment advice, but how are you guys thinking about you know, if this thing goes public, you know, how interested are you in sort of adding it to your portfolio? I'm interested. Let me let me say that. 
it, it feels so very hard. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> feels very hard to say these days because of the pricing that you might get. But long term, I will definitely be looking for opportunities to buy and, you know, may do some amount on IPO day, but like I'm going to keep a close tab on it if I ever feel like it gets to an exciting place so that I can, you know, double up and triple up because I think it's an insanely powerful and impressive business. I'm a similar boat. It's interesting. I've got a lot of, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. Some of it will certainly depend on the price. I say some because of what I'm about to say. It's not often that you see a business with this kind of power uh, and this kind of potential. Like it's very, very rare. And I very much believe that the management team, that Dave, that the current shareholder base behind the company is thinking extremely long term here makes it very attractive. Like an, an ordinary circumstances, all else being equal, this is one of very few things that I think about as a candidate for like, I'm going to put in my, I think of this as my, like, uh, I call it my compounding portfolio where I have like, I think I have only five equities in there right now. Amazon, Spotify, Tencent, Zoom, and Berkshire that I think of as like long-term, I can hold this for a decade plus two decades and be happy. I think this is a candidate for that. I am thinking a lot about the rec room, you know, age dynamic. <laughs> like if rec room were going public and we were able to invest in that, which would I rather? I probably would want to own both <laughs> and just play the theme as a whole. The price is interesting. Like this is probably going to go out at a nutso price. You know, I was thinking similar things with DoorDash, with Snowflake and the like, and uh, even Zoom at the original IPO. And it's like, well, this price is too expensive. I'm going to, just like you, Mario, I'm going to wait and <laughs> wait for an opportunity. Uh, there was no opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> like, so I don't know what to do in this environment about this, but that's how I'm thinking about it. Well, I don't know what to do in this environment about this is I think the bow that we can put on many episodes and is a great place to leave this one. Mario, really awesome to do this. Uh, this Wait, Ben, you can't get out of it. You can't, you can't get out of it. <laughs> oh, answer here. <laughs> I feel like I'm the least educated on this one. And I don't just I just don't do as much of this, I think, as you do, David. I will be very interested in this company, but like I'm not going to go out and individually buy this stock. Like I'm going to watch it. I'm going to be very curious. I'll follow it. I hope to do a future required episode on it. But if it was a SPAC, you'd be all over this. <laughs> <laughs> the SPAC strategy is a little different. I can I can articulate that another time. <laughs> I love it. Which as it should be, like if you're not willing to, uh, for whatever reason, be willing to follow this thing for a decade, like at least my view is like you shouldn't invest in something if it's not something you're willing to follow for a decade. That's one strategy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the time-tested strategy where you can't time the market. But imagine you could. <laughs> imagine you could. Oh, boy. The world we live in. Indeed. Well, Mario, one more time. Where can folks from the acquired LP community find you, find The Generalist, and uh, read more? You can check out readthegeneralist.com and would love you to check it out and see if uh, you're interested in learning about more S1s and, and companies in the private markets. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mario D. Gabrielli. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This was uh, a real treat. I really appreciate it. Super fun. And you should do more audio. I think like for any new folks who are, are listening to this from the generalists, like you should email Mario and tell him he should do, do more more podcast stuff because this okay. is great. Please tell me that because I'm I'm very nervous. <laughs> I, t I texted these guys right before this, being like, "I am absolutely shaking to do this." <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, man. Well, for anyone who's an LP or for anyone who's from the generalist, we do have a Slack, acquired.fm slash Slack. That is a great community to talk about all things of current tech news going on, current investing going on. And it's a really fun place to hop in there and, and hang out and discuss all this stuff with everyone. So go check it out. If you're new, check out the main show. Most of our content is free and is these three-hour epic deep dives into most recently Bitcoin, but usually companies. This is sort of a, a much shorter, more abbreviated, more sort of conversational, casual version. Mario, much like this was much more casual and conversational than like I, I think you're writing, which every sentence has so much gravitas when I read it. Oh, I, I love it. What a charmer. <laughs> I love it. Only the three of us, right, could be like... Yeah, an hour and 40 minute episode. This is brief. Yeah, it's nice, nice and tight. We're going to keep it yeah. real tight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Amazing. Listeners, see you next time. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much.